the question is, do these, and there's five different passages in Hebrews. We're going to skim four of them and then come back and look at the third one next week because that's the most detailed and the most controversial. And the issue has to do with this. If we, on the one hand, believe the Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer, do these five warning passages, which, as you read them, give the opposite that a Christian, a genuine believer Christian, can lose, forfeit, apostatize their relationship with Christ, that it is possible not for, now we're not talking about just we go through seasons and valleys, but a person who, can a person who is a genuine believer, can they lose that salvation? So what has been debated and somewhat of a, of a bit of a tension is that these passages in the book of Hebrews would suggest that that, upon, upon just initial looking and reading, that these passages would teach the opposite of that, all right? So look at your outline. I'm just going to walk through this so we don't meander too much. So the theme, do the five warning passages in Hebrews teach that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation? And I say lose their salvation, I mean that they can move from a child of God to going to hell, lose their salvation, become a reprobate once they have been saved. Does this, do these contradict passages that teach the eternal security of the Christian? So, for example, and I just pulled some random ones there that I have on your sheet. Of course, Jesus and John 6, and it's there. Uh, Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, pretty straightforward. Those Jesus said that believe in me, um, none will be lost, and, uh, and I, that they all will uh, you know, have the security that I will lose nothing, all that the Father um, has predestined uh, and given to me, and and that I should lose nothing. John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, Romans 8, and there's others, but these are more familiar to most. Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. And again, the no is the no to verse 35. You with me? No. None of these things shall separate us from the love of Christ. No. In all these things we are, in all these things that he just mentioned, tribulation, distress, persecution, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I mean, he just kind of goes through the list. Shall or will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those are just, you know, sample passages that... that uh, that does the believer, and I believe the believer does have an eternal security, but when you come to Hebrews and you look at these five different passages, are they teaching something that is opposite or something that contradicts that, and so is there uh, some tension there? And you know, it is not uncommon to sometimes on the surface look at passages and things in the Bible that might on the surface seem to appear to be saying two, two different things. For example, um, when you come, we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for you're saved by grace, and that is not of yourselves, lest that anyone should boast. It's a gift of God, right? Grace, we know, 
unmerited favor, okay? And then uh, you come to James, and is James teaching where it says faith without works is dead? Is he teaching the opposite of grace? Is he teaching a workspace? Of course not. When you understand what James is saying, and it's pretty obvious what he's saying if you read it, he's saying that the faith of, that we're saved by, the grace faith, that works accompany saving faith. In fact, that's even what Paul, if you read Ephesians 2 verse 10, says, for we are his workmanship, um, that he is appointed, now I'm getting it out of my head, where we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So good works don't save you, but good works, if you will, or evidence or fruit of salvation follow. Um, the salvation that grace that saves us, that it's by grace alone, uh, it is not evidenced alone. In other words, there is, there is fruit. So, uh, but on the surface, people want to make a lot of initial hay out of that uh, by saying, oh, well, James is contradicting Paul, and there's this... No, no, there's no controversy. Um, there's harmony, all right? So on your outline, you go back to that, and this is just kind of introduction before we kind of uh, look at some of the passages. And as I said, we're going to look at four of them briefly tonight and then spend the majority of the time on a third one. But just stay with the outline with me. Historically in church history, and I uh, again, this is important whether these terms, I doubt you'll be quizzed at the gate of heaven, you know, if you know these terms, but they're just important as a Christian. You know, you come on Wednesday, I generally assume people on Wednesday a little more you know, uh, take a little more effort and time for uh, the study of the Word. So that's why, again, I point these out to you. There's two main perspectives throughout church history in approaching uh, the issue of security of the believer or can a believer uh, be lost? Is it possible for a believer to, uh, to lose their salvation? One, and I have kind of several categories there is the Armenian, and that's not Armenian. Armenian is a ethnic cultural uh, group in uh, what out in Belarus, Ukraine, out in that the, the Baltics. This is Armenian. James Arminius is what just like John Calvin, Calvinism, James Arminius is what it's named for, but but that's not important. Uh, what people from a Wesleyan or Methodist background, Pentecostal, generally hold this view, all right? So, and this view is that, that a genuine believer may apostatize, that is, reject or lose their salvation, and thus no longer be considered secure, saved to eternal life. According to this one view, a Christian may through rebellion or disobedience, lose their salvation for all eternity. Generally, those in that um, church theological perspective, that's, that's the view that they would hold concerning this issue. Uh, the second predominant view is the Calvinistic, Reformed, uh, Presbyterian, Baptist. And again, I know there's varieties of Baptists, and, but generally, Baptists traditionally have held to a security of the believer. This view, which takes, takes their approach by looking and saying that a genuine believer may experience seasons and periods of rebellion and disobedience, emphasis as a genuine believer, they may experience seasons or periods of rebellion and disobedience, but will eventually return to an obedient walk with God through repentance. Why? Because under the Reformed Calvinistic rubric, they have been predestined, elected. God has secured their salvation and the atonement. Um, he has given them uh, sustaining and persevering grace. And because they have been uh, sovereignly redeemed, uh, then therefore, even though they may slip and fall and slide and, and whatever, but because of their election that is given to them by God, not them, they will ultimately uh, persevere in the faith, that they will not, for 
uh, as a permanent state be in a position or state or behavior of rejecting or, back, or you know, I don't say backslidden, but, but of turning away from the faith. Does that make sense? All right. Um, so again, I'm just trying to state the two views here. So if, according to the Reformed view, if a professing Christian, so if, they say, well, what about people I know that are Christians and they've, they've rejected the faith? Um, there's a term now that's kind of popular in the culture among so-called believers, and they call it deconstructing. You know, I used to be a Christian, now I'm deconstructing. Okay. Uh, if a professing Christian, according to this view, we're on number two, the Calvinistic, Reformed, Presbyterian, Baptist view, he's very general, if a professing Christian turns from their faith, meaning backwards, meaning they reject, uh, they reject Christ, they renounce, I'm no longer a believer, and there's been some so-called celebrity, even uh, preachers that have said this. Uh, and there's no evidence ever of any repentance in their life, according to this view, it does not negate this view. It just only proves that that person was never genuinely converted to begin with. You with me? And often the example that is cited is Judas. I mean, my gosh, they point him treasurer of the money. They had no clue. They had no clue. When Jesus said, somebody around this table is going to betray me, they didn't all just look at Judas. We know it's him. We never liked him. No. So, so again, uh, hold on to that because, again, the and, and I think one passage that is... Um, is often cited in regards to a, and we'll call that counterfeit Christianity, is Matthew 7. Do you know what Matthew 7 is? There will be those that meet, there will be those that come to me on that day and will say what? And they will give their spiritual resume. And Jesus will say to them on that day, meaning a final day of judgment, I what? Never knew you. But they are not, these aren't people who were engaged in uh, child sacrifice and paganism. They talked about, again, what, you know, we cast out demons in your name and did miraculous. In other words, on the surface, human level, and again, there's Matthew 7, you can read it. On the human level, they gave every evidence of being genuine followers of Jesus. In fact, let's just look over at that. That's. I know it may be familiar, but Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. And right above that, he's talking about false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, verse 15. But Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, so he's just drawn the line there of the condition of who's going to be in and who's going to be out. All right? Then he says, on that day, many, and that's interesting, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They're respectful. Did we not prophesy in your name? Speak your word. Speak forth your word. Cast out demons in your name. And do mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he goes on to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man build his house on the rock. So counterfeit Christians, according to that view, um, is, is, uh, is a way to explain that. All right, so next page, the book of Hebrews. And I've kind of already said this. Much of the discussion regarding eternal security and or whether a Christian can lose their salvation revolves uh, around five main passages or warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And so rather than 
kind of waiting, and some of them we've already kind of gone past, but I wanted to kind of address this kind of all in one, one stop. And, uh, and, and the approaches, the reason I brought up about the different approaches historically between the Arminian, Wesleyan, Methodist, Pentecostal, or the Reformed, Calvinistic, and again, I'll just say Arminian, Calvinistic, but, but just so you know the traditions that follow those views, is because your interpretive predisposition will determine or have bias in how you interpret these passages in Hebrews. Now, people like to say, oh, I don't have any bias. Everybody's got bias. I got bias. You got bias. We, have, we don't just come to, uh, you know, the Bible or any. You know, we come to it with presuppositions. Uh, one presupposition, I believe this is the literal word of God. So I start there. You know, um, I was, it's amazing what you listen to when you're sick. I mean, I, I've watched more episodes of Cops and... Oh, my goodness. And then I was watching a liberal professor teach on, uh, what was he teaching? Oh, on Jeremiah. Who, and, 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 you know, and again, I, I find that stuff entertaining and challenging because it helps me think through and listen to why, um, you know, why I might think a certain way or believe. So, but, so your, your, your predisposition of how you approach Scripture will generally fall in one of these two categories. Whether you understand these terms, whether you know anything about these terms, it doesn't matter, you will generally fall into one of these terms. So now, those two approaches, if you're the more, we'll say, uh, Arminian Wesleyan, that, talking about Hebrews now, they would see that the people that are addressed in these five passages, okay, we're kind of we're coming into the landing, these five passages that we're going to look at, four tonight, one next week, their approach would say that they see that these, these are Hebrew Christians who are either presently in a state of apostasy or lostness and or moving in that direction. So they see the audience of Hebrews kind of generally as one audience, and they say that as you read, uh, like, you know, when you come to these passages, we'll do in a minute, they say they see them all as Christians who are either presently being warned about not rejecting the faith, they're either in the process of going down that road, or they're being exhorted to stop and, and stay faithful, okay? But, they, but that approach sees them as believers with that possibility that they can lose their salvation, all right? So what I'm saying is that when, they re, when a person reads these, as we'll do in a minute, if you have that in your, in your, in your view, that's how you're going to understand these passages, all right? The other is if you're looking at for more of the reform view, you will read these five different passages uh, and say, well, it's obviously referring to people that were on the surface, uh, that on the surface they have an appearance of saving faith as Christians, but they're counterfeit because not a genuine believer could never apostatize, become an apostate, or reject the faith. So even if the warning of the possibility, there are warnings given by the writer of Hebrews to these individuals that are hearing or reading this letter that are counterfeits because they're the only ones that could fall into that category of losing your salvation. So that's how they approach it, okay? All right? <clears throat> now, one of the things that is, is interesting is, and I'm sure most of you won't ever do this, but if you were to take, if I bring you... 15 commentaries on the book of Hebrews. Almost to each one, I'm talking about, you name it, run the gamut, all different, generally all different perspectives. They will say, uh, they will probably all land in one of these two areas. But they will also say that these five passages, especially the one we'll look at next week, is probably one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Scripture. 
I mean, Don, that one you uh, loaned me uh, right at the beginning of that, in um, the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, that third warning says this is one of the most difficult passages. To I mean, these are people that, you know, they get paid for their brains. You know, they're smarter and biblical scholars. So that gives me a little comfort knowing that, you know, okay, this is not a slam dunk. But still, at the same time, let's try to, let's try to massage it, work through it, and see if we can come to understand. I believe that there is a third alternative in how we look at these, okay? So instead of just saying you're either in one of these two camps and you're kind of locked into that and you just kind of have to make the shoe fit, I think there's a third alternative to consider. Now, like anything, everything's got holes in it. There's always, except there's always, but in, uh, in studying this in more detail than I have ever in the past, I found this to me to be the most helpful, at least to me, that makes the most sense, okay? So I'm going to approach it with a third alternative. So if you say, okay, that Calvinistic view, that's a little too this way, this is a little too this way. Even if you are Reformed and Calvinistic, you still have to wrestle with some of these passages that seem to say something very opposite of what you, you know. So how do you do that? I think there's a third alternative. And I put a question mark there because that just shows I'm not positive, but throw it out there. Another approach is to see the author of Hebrews, you know, again, we're not sure if it's Paul or somebody, we're, you know, there's, that the writer of Hebrews, interestingly, if you were reading the letter of Paul that he wrote to the Corinthians, he is writing a letter to the church at, right. The, church of, uh, the, the letter to the Philippians is to the church at Philippi. Not the Philippines, the Philippi, all right? But in Hebrews, it's not addressed to a specific church locality, okay? It's just a letter to the Hebrews. And we said these are Hebrews who are obviously Christian in some way, or at least among the Christian community, but their background, their ethnicity, their religious culture, their is what? They're not Gentiles. They're Jews. And that's how he approaches from the beginning, you know, and the superiority of Jesus over all the prophets that preceded, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And then the angels, you know, uh, and then Moses and the law and and all the, the priestly system. And he, he's going to get more detailed into the priestly system, but that Jesus is our high priest. So these are Jews, but it's not necessarily to a specific group of people in Kathleen that he's talking to, all right? Now, the third approach is essentially saying, look, just like in any congregation or group of people, you primarily, at any one time on a Sunday, have three basic people present at the same time that I, and Jim did a great job Sunday, um, I just got the USB, so it'll be online, I encourage you to listen to it, and uh, it'll be up online tomorrow. Um, but at any one time, you have this dance you have to do in your head because you're speaking to at least three different people at the same time. You're looking at... People in your congregation that are inquirers or seekers, they're unbelievers. Inquiring minds want to know. Um, you might have people that have been in the church and have a profession of Christianity, but there's no fruit, there's no evidence, and there's perhaps they're self-deceived. You know, by the way, that Matthew 7 passage, always, the thing I always find interesting about that is... Jesus paints this or shows this picture of people that are before him, before this, the, they call it the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And instead of this, um, what do I want to say? Instead of this uh, falling down in worship, they are in essence defending their religious resume. They're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, don't you know? We're, we, we did this, and we did that, and we... 
which tells me, in a, in a sobering way, the soberness of self-deception. That you can roll into eternity deceived. Think about that. Because they still, it came as a shock, or will come as a shock, when he says, I never knew you. What do you mean you never knew me? I built an 8,000 seat auditorium for you, Jesus. What do you mean you never knew me? But that knowing isn't omniscience. I didn't know about you, but it's a knowing of an intimate, you know, Adam knew Eve, and then they had Junior, right? Uh, it's a knowing, it's an intimate knowing. Find that interesting. So, in any group like these Hebrews, I think you've got inquirers, they're not believers. But they're in the Christian community. They like hanging. They're, they're checking things out. They, they like the, the potluck suppers and they like the music. You know, they like, they like the people. They're enjoying things. But they're not converted. But then you've got people that, you know, they've just been around church all their life. Or they, you know, they really enjoy the atmosphere or whatever. But they, they have kind of that Sunday. We used to call them... I don't know what we call them. I remember I had a pastor called referred to people as schmoes, Sunday morning onlys. <laughs> yeah, they're a schmo, Sunday morning only, meaning you just see them, you know. There'll be people that show up on Mother's Day, you know. I mean, I remember, I would never do this because I think it's too crass. Um, you know, show up on Easter and say, hey, we just want to tell you, we'll see you on Christmas, you know. Uh, no, you won't because they're going to think you're a jerk. But anyway, uh, so you have people that are religious, right? And if you were to ask them, are they Christians? They would certainly, but yet, and again, that's not our job. In fact, Jesus even told about the parables of the wheat and the tares, that they will grow up when he gave about, talking about one of his kingdom parables about the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the tares are, they look, they look like wheat, talk like wheat, walk like wheat, no. But I mean, they, but it, it only is going to be when an, when an angel sent from the Lord comes for the harvest that will be able to separate the wheat and the tares. He doesn't tell you to do that. He doesn't tell you to go around with your theological, you know, ruler and start, you know, I don't know. I don't know, Debbie. You got a little work there. I don't know. You got a little work. We got to work on your theology. But there are people that, you know, that have, that's not our job, right? It's not our job. But you have this group. And then, and then in this audience of these Hebrews, you have genuine Christians. But as we'll see, and then we'll see time and again, uh, there is an exhortation. We saw this a few weeks ago to grow up. There's an immaturity about them. They're believers. In fact, look over to, um, Give you an example. Look over, I think it's in Hebrews 5.12. Hebrews 5.12. You got your Bibles there in Hebrews. Hebrews 5.12. Well, start at verse 11. He says, About this we have much to say. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. About this much we have much to say. I mean, he's in the middle of talking about Jesus as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, verse 6. And he realized in verse 10, and he's like, well, but he says, look, I, we have more to say, and it is hard to explain, verse 11, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time, which would imply by this time in your walk, your exposure, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk kind of inferring their spiritual babies, not spiritual food. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. So you have these three groups, and the reason I'm belaboring this is because that's important, because as, you, as we're going to look at these five different passages, we need to ask ourselves if we at least theorize this approach, what, what group is being addressed in that passage. Because, as I said, if you only take a one-size-fits-all approach, either strict Arminian, non-reformed, or this, then you, when you come to these passages, you, you've got to 
you've got to kind of fall into this thing to make those fit. You with me? You with me? Nod your head. All right. All right. All right. So, in the last page there, I just throw this in. And this kind of says in a different way is the context. And that's anytime you read the Bible, you want to know what the context is. Um, you know, when you read it, well, that's why we belabor a lot of times in, when we open up a new book study or I'll remind it, we, we say, okay, let's remember who's the audience. You know, who are they writing to? What's the situation? What's the, you know, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And so that interpretive key, you see that? You see that page there? Um, that interpretive key is that you make sure you're asking, what is the context? And so one of the ways that we want to look at context, um, do you not have that page? Oh, it's on the second page? Okay. Is it on the back? Okay, it's on the second page. Um, and so you want to say, what is the context? So you want to say, what has gone before it? What's coming after it? You know, and that helps you to be able to give some understanding. Um, and so let me just mention this, because this oftentimes you will see this, and you'll see it in other places, is a lot of times people will see that the writer uh, will use, uh, like Paul uses, uh, the term the people of God or brethren. And so make an, accept, uh, an assumption that because uh, he writes about uh, the people of God or the brethren, that automatically that means that everybody is a believer. Uh, and yet, there are places in the Old Testament, New Testament, where the term brethren, people of God, are used as a general, you know, I might say on a Sunday morning, you as the people of God. But I'm not necessarily saying that every one of you I know for certain, I know your heart, you know, it, it's just kind of a general statement. And, and to me, a, a good example that helps that to understand that is the passage I printed out there in Romans 9. So look at this, Romans 9, with this thought. Because when you come to one of these passages, you say, oh, well, he's saying brethren or people of God. So that passage must mean he's talking about Christians or he's talking about genuine believers, but not necessarily. Um, so, for example, it can be used in a much generalized. So look what he says in Romans 9. This is just an example. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off uh, from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, he's not talking about his brothers in, the, in Christ. He's talking about his brothers uh, uh, ethnically as Jews. Because he says, my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But you see how he uses my brothers. They are, all, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He's, he's belaboring that all that they've been given, uh, to them, the, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, he's, these are his brothers, his kinsmen, but they're not his brothers in Christ, and he makes that distinction. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Look at this carefully. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Do you see what he's doing there? He's pivoting from the racial, racial ethnicity privileges that certainly he's not denying they are great privileges, but he's making the point is that's not what is important. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, not just because you've been born a Cohen and you've been part of the Cohen family. You, your mama didn't marry a Goldberg. You're part of the Cohen family, right? Anytime you see somebody with the name Cohen, the history of that one, that's one of the names that has a Levitical history to it, by the way. Verse 8, 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh, naturally, who are the children of God, ah, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. All I want you to see there is that there's an example of brothers being used not in referring to people that are genuine believers. So when we maybe come to a passage in Hebrews where he might refer to brothers or brethren or people of God, don't just assume, oh, he's talking about true believers there. could just be a very general statement like we would say in church, brothers, sisters, you know, okay? All right. Any questions thus far? And we're going to look at quickly uh, four of these. They're not long. But the third one will take up a lot of time, and we'll save that for next week. So any questions on anything that I've said, just to clarify anything real quick? All right. Looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the first exhortation or warning that we'll look at. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I didn't give you a lot of room to write, because there won't be a lot of notes on these, but chapter 5 and 6, the third one, I'll give you a different outline, because there will be several pieces that we want to look at. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, this is the first warning, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the first thing I would suggest is as you approach that, you say, okay, if we, if we are using these three groups in the audience, which of these three groups... Um, does it seem he's referring to? And I would suggest that he's referring to people that we would call either inquirers, they're not believers, they're, they're kind of still on the edge, they're still just kind of out there a little bit, or maybe, again, the warning could easily apply to those that are kind of counterfeits, that are still kind of got one foot, you know, as a preacher would say, they got one foot in the church and one foot in the world, right? They're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of haven't made that full confession um, and so that warning, the people um, uh, that are addressed, there's no hint that they've made any genuine profession of faith. And so they have, it says they've heard the message. A lot of people have heard the gospel, haven't they? You ever think about all the people, just take the Billy Graham crusade. I'm not talking about people who come forward, but all the people, I don't know if anybody's ever done this, I'm sure they have, they would tally up. From the time he started to his last crusade, those that were exposed to hearing the gospel, not just in person, but on radio and television, and today are still, you know, his sermons. Your grandchildren will, you know, be hearing, uh, you know, Lord doesn't return by then. But, But so there's a lot of people that have heard, but that doesn't mean they're converted. So what is he warning? He's warning these People that are inquirers, they're in this audience, um, to pay attention much closer to what they've heard, lest we drift away from it. And it's always kind of interesting to keep that parable of the soils in the back of your head about how some seed fell among the, the stony ground, some fell among the, you know, the wayside and the sun scorched it. And, you know, I think that's a good parallel to this we're talking about here. And so... He's saying, don't neglect, when he says, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no escape for inquirers who neglect the message. Now, again, that doesn't mean Christians, uh, you know, we need to make sure we're obedient. But as far as salvation goes, it seems though those fits those who are inquirers or counterfeits that are still kind of on the edge, kind of playing around, all right? That's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, all right? So, all right, look at the, the second one, the second one. Again, 
these, the, just like any of these views on this, it's kind of, uh, if you've uh, watched or been in a court thing or jury, they talk about the preponderance of the evidence. And sometimes that's what you do when you come to issues that there's not, you know, I've had people, Jim's had people, we know these people, they want chapter and verse. Tell me where this says. I'm like, where does it say you should have brushed your teeth this morning? Show me that verse. I mean, you know, like they just want to like, show me, show me. And a lot of times in Scripture, it's precept upon precept. It's principles. It's guidelines, right? It didn't just, you know, I cannot show you a verse that proves the Trinity. I can show you many passages that help us understand, but the Trinity, it isn't like, and thou shalt understand the Trinity, he is a father. You know, it doesn't say that, right? So when you talk about the second, coming of, uh, the second coming of Christ, there's many different approaches to that. So be a Berean. Acts 17, those Bereans. You, you weigh Scripture and you just kind of say, well, I kind of lean this way. It seems like Scripture kind of leans this way. That's all I'm suggesting with this because I'm not comfortable with just these two one size fits all. So it helps to say, okay, maybe that audience are inquirers. Let's look at the second audience in chapter 3, verse 12. And we, uh, we spent some time, several weeks on this, so I'm not going to do much of it here. But I would suggest that the audience here, generally speaking, are those that are in this, that are hearing it, or reading it, or in this community that would be more of what I would call counterfeit Christians. They're, they're giving some lip service, but it doesn't seem to be, there's not, doesn't seem to be a genuineness to their, to their faith. Uh, look at, um, what is it, uh, verse 12. <clears throat> Take care, brothers. This is the second warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, right away, I don't think that anywhere that that's necessarily said about a believer that they're referred to as having an evil, unbelieving heart. Do you? I mean, if you can scramble in your concordance, and I, I just... So that would at least signal to me that this group that he's addressing here are probably not believers, genuine believers, but are probably one of these two other categories, or at least the counterfeit, because he says, notice he says brothers, that's why I pointed that out, don't just assume he's talking to Christians. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if... Do you see the condition there? I'm reading from the ESV. We have come to share in Christ. But that if is conditional, isn't it? You know what I mean by... I mean, yeah, you're going to share if... If, indeed, we hold our original confidence, what's our original confidence? Our, I believe our original saving faith, firm to the end. And then he gives, remember back when we looked at this, he quoted uh, Psalm 95 and showed how those who were in the wilderness, because of the rebellion, they did not inherit the promised land. They died really as unbelievers in the wilderness. It's in that context that he's addressing, that he's making the pivot to verse 10, 12 and now to verse 16, for he says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? That's, that's the example he's talking about back in verse 8, 9, 10. Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? They heard. They heard. They, were, they saw the miracles, right? They were exposed to the same thing, but 
And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it, was, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He's talking about people that had a profession. They were part of the community. They came out of Egypt. Everything was going for them. But they did not, verse 18, enter into God's rest. Verse 19, because they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. So that's why I believe when you come to that, if you immediately say, oh, that's a warning to Christians not to fall away. Not so sure. I think it's talking about people that, in context, are out there in that audience of the Hebrews that fall into that category like those folks in the wilderness. They're exposed to a lot of things. They're exposed to the truth. They hear, they hear all the right messages. But because of unbelief and the, the picture of entering into God's rest is entering into Christ. They failed to enter into the rest that God has provided us in Christ, and that's what he means in chapter 4. So he says, verse 11 in chapter 4, let us therefore strive, this is an exhortation to those that are counterfeits, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any Two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul, of spirit. James says faith, uh, hearing is good, but faith that does not produce evidence or works, he says that is what? DOA, dead. But he says the word of God, if the word of God, see the problem in the parable of the soils, the problem was not the seed, was it? Problem wasn't the seed, and Jesus said the seed is the word of God. Problem wasn't the seed. Problem was in the, the soil, the heart. So he says the word of God, the word of God's not the problem. It can pierce to the division of soul, spirit, joints, and marrows. It is the discerner of thoughts. Any questions? Again, I'm not going to die on a hill for any of these. But this, to me, helps me understand these when I read them to say, who is he talking about? Okay? We're going to skip the third one, but we're going to come back to it next week because it, it is the, uh, the most laborious to kind of work through, and uh, I wanted to save that for next week. So let's just look at um, the uh, fourth one, okay? Good grief, how many pages do I have on that? Okay, that shows you we never, we never do. All right, look at the fourth one, okay? We'll come back to that. And by the way, the third one I think I have on your outline, the audience of that third exhortation, I believe, is being addressed to, in, to Christians who are genuine believers, or at least generally, you know, are genuine believers, but are immature and haven't grown up. They're, they haven't grown in their faith. And we'll, we'll explain that when we do that next. Look at this fourth one, all right? Uh, this fourth warning, again, I'm, I'm going to say this again, fits to those who are counterfeit, superficial uh, believers. Let's uh, look at uh, chapter 10, verse 26. And then we'll just have one more after this. Chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 26. And uh, may not read all through 39. All right, so let's keep that in mind. This audience are counterfeit believers. For verse 26, chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I would just point out the word knowledge there. The, word, the Greek word is epinosis. You've heard of the word gnosis or gnostics. Gnosis just means knowing, knowledge. Um, and so sometimes knowledge doesn't always mean knowledge in the sense of a full, complete knowledge. I mean, there are people that, um, again, um, 
there's a knowing about something, but there's not necessarily... I mean, for example, in Romans 1, that Paul says the evidences of God are known to the depraved mind. But what's the problem? They don't really know and have a knowledge of what they have knowledge of. Does that make sense? They know, Romans 1, but they don't really have the full transforming knowledge of truth, all right? So again, sometimes again, stop, pause, say, so after receiving the knowledge of truth, at least the exposure, and uh, there's a lot of really boring stuff in the Greek words that can mean just that word that just means a recognition of the truth. You go out on the streets of Lakeland and you start interviewing people do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? You'll probably, majority of people will say and affirm yes. Do you believe in God? You'll probably get the majority, but yet, that doesn't have any effect on their life. They have a, they have a recognition of truth, right? Okay. Sending deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. I'm just going to not read it all and trust that You'll, uh, I'll provoke you to go back and read it. Let me, let me, um, let me just kind of, again, just kind of get to this. Is this, again, is a, I think this fits with those who have a counterfeit, superficial uh, approach to their Christianity. They have an awareness and a recognition, exposure. Uh, verse 29 it uses the word sanctified. Well, you know, sanctified doesn't necessarily just mean justification, sanctification, glorification. You know, the word sanctified in its most basic literal sense means what? Huh? Set apart. I mean, the, there were elements used in the uh, temple that were sanctified. That just means they weren't inherently, but they were set apart. Um, so being set apart um, doesn't, I mean, sanctified doesn't necessarily mean, again, if you're saying, and I'm not saying this is addressing believers, because it says they've out, the SV says, uh, verse, and I'm reading it verse, I'm sorry, I skipped down the latter part of verse 29. Uh, they've outraged the spirit of grace. That doesn't sound like a believer. We can grieve the Spirit, but it says they've outraged, the ESV says. Um, here's what, it, um, and I want to make sure I don't get the, hold on just a minute. I, mean, I want to make sure I don't, because they, they kind of weave together. Well, really, I'll just say this and um, move on, because it really goes with when we look at the third one. One of the things that will come out when we look at the third warning is somewhat kind of unique among these Jewish Hebrew believers. You remember, under the Old Testament system, you had to offer sacrifices continually, annually, for your sin. But in the New Covenant, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, Himself became sin once and for all, a final sacrifice. And so part of the, the little underlying, and it gets a little confusing, that I think the writer of Hebrews is, is addressing here is a problem when he talks about that the mindset, and this will make sense when you, we go back and look at uh, the third one next week, when he talks about let us move on from the basic principles of the Christian life, repentance under good works. And, he, and remember the passage in, in chapter 5, verse 12? He says, you know, you, you, I can only give you milk because you're like babies. That apparently, the one understanding is that there was, a, there was an understanding because of their Jewish background that, that every time they struggled with sin, they lacked an understanding of the full, complete sacrifice and atonement that Christ has provided us once and for all, and so just like under the old system, when they sinned, they had to re-sacrifice to atone for that sin, because they, they just like, in essence, it's almost as though, say it this way, that they felt that it was a mindset that they had to get re-saved 
all over again. You with me? Because that fit into that. Remember, he's talking to, if these are immature believers, they're not the sharpest knife in the, tool, in the, in the drawer, theologically. They don't really have a complete... Remember what he was talking about, Melchizedek and Jesus the high priest? And he kind of just stops and says, there's so much I want to tell you, but you can't handle it. You can't handle the truth, you know? I mean, you can't handle it. And so, one of the things that we'll see brought out in that third warning, and you see a little bit of it here, when he says that if we go on sinning, verse 26, even though we understand the truth, or we've been exposed to the truth, um, but we keep on sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. So these are people, again, that are at least in their behavior or appealing to the actions of the law because that's what the writer is using here to say, look... You're still walking in that covenant of death. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified or set apart, outraged the Spirit of grace? They had a mindset that if they sinned, that somehow they had to get re-saved all over again. Just like under the old system, they had to offer a new sacrifice every year to atone and cover that sin. So they were dealing with sin, and therefore their mindset was to... Jesus And Paul, or whoever the writer is, is saying, look, you, you don't understand what salvation is. When you've, been, when you've received the forgiveness and the grace of the blood of the Lamb... It doesn't mean you're sinless. 1 John 1, 1.9. If any of you sin. Right? But they didn't understand the provision of what this Jesus, as the high priest of the new covenant, has given to them. Their new place they have as new covenant believers. They were still working as babies, toddlers, and trying to mix in what they used to know. There's people like that I know in church. That they come into church and because maybe they were raised in a Roman Catholic system. Or they may be raised in an evangelical works-based system. It takes them a while. And maybe some of you have been like that. It takes you a while to kind of, you know, I miss church on Sunday. I just feel guilty. I've, maybe, maybe I've lost my salvation. I don't have any, you know, because you had that, you've walked in that, that mode that's the way you live your, and sometimes, uh, and I know Jim, you've talked about this even last week, that that works mindset can just evidence itself in just so many subtleties because we don't understand who we are in Christ and what Christ has done. I think that's what is behind uh, this fourth warning. And the last, we'll close here, I think goes back at verse chapter 12, 25 through 29. We'll just close with this. And I think, again, these are people who are not Christians and more than likely are unbelievers but are still inquiring. Verse 25, chapter 12. See that you... These are warnings to them. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Believers aren't struggling with rejecting, uh, and, and the issue is an escape. A believer, even an immature believer, uh, it, whether, they have an intellect, whether they have the knowledge of it or not, uh, that's not a warning that is applicable uh, to them. At that time, his voice shook the earth, and now... He has promised, yet once more I will shake only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, therefore, let us, and I think again, 
Think of it like a church setting. Let us, even though he might be, there's times in which I try to drive home a point to people who might not be believers or be on the edge. But yet I'm at the same time, I'm saying, let us come to Christ. You know, I'm, I'm giving that exhortation. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, it's not saying that all of these don't have some relevance to believers, but remember, as we close, what the issue is. Can a, is Hebrews contradicting or teaching something that is different that teaches that a person of genuine faith in Christ, a genuine follower of Christ, can lose their salvation? My contention is Hebrews teaches no such thing. In fact, Hebrews contention across the board is a book intended to instill confidence and boldness to believers. It's just the opposite. It's not meant to undermine. It's meant to instill confidence. And so I found it helpful that when you come to these passages that might would suggest, oh, it seems to be saying something different than over here. Ah, the Bible contradicts itself. Stop. Think, look, process, get some information, look at it and say, so my bias, I do have a bias. I do not believe a genuine, regenerate believer can ever be eternally lost. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. So therefore, and at the same time, are there counterfeit believers? Sure, there are. But again, limit ourselves to Hebrews. We're trying to say, what do these five passages say? We're not trying to teach a whole series on eternal security. We're just saying, when we come to these five passages, are they teaching something that contradicts the other counsel of God's Word?